What is up, you guys? Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you are subscribed to this podcast. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. Along with that, go ahead and rate the podcast and review it as well. I really look forward to hearing your feedback. So today we are talking about the most prolific serial killer in modern day history. We haven't covered a serial killer case for quite some time now and because of that I thought it would be great to talk about one today. Today we are talking about a man named Harold Shipman. Harold Shipman had anywhere from 215 to 265 victims during his killing spree from 1975 to 1998. Some of you may be familiar with Harold Shipman as he is sometimes referred to as Dr. Death or the Angel of Death. Let's get into it today. Harold Shipman was born on January 14th, 1946 in Nottingham, Nottinghamshire. He was born to his parents, Harold Sr. Shipman and Vera Britton. Harold worked as a truck driver and they lived as a working class family. Harold was the middle child and he was described as very smart. He was really intelligent in school and he was also pretty athletic. He played rugby and he was also a distance runner. And then senior year of high school, he was actually actually the vice captain of the athletics team. Harold also passed his 11 plus, which is not something that we have in the States. So for those who are unaware, it essentially is just a test that determines whether you will go to secondary school or grammar school. And Harold passed this test with complete flying colors. And because of that, he ended up going to a place called High Pavement Grammar School, where he would continue to excel with his education. Now, I want to discuss Harold's relationship with his mother. Now, growing up, it was very apparent to everyone around that Harold was his mother's favorite child. Starting from a very early age, Vera instilled a sense of superiority in Harold. Because of her favoritism towards him, it definitely had a negative effect on his relationships and friendships as he grew up. It caused him to become more isolated from people his age and made him kind of a loner. But nevertheless, the favoritism that Vera played did cause her and her son to have a very, very close relationship. However, unfortunately, things took a turn for the worst when Vera ended up being diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. This was obviously completely devastating for everyone in the family, and Harold in particular was extremely affected by this. Harold helped his mother as much as he could could and oversaw all of her care. As part of her treatment, Vera was given morphine to help make her more comfortable and ease any pain that she was having, and Harold watched the morphine have positive effects on his mom. He saw that it made her feel better. However, on June 21st, 1963, Vera ended up passing away from lung cancer when she was only 42 years old, and Harold at the time was 17 years old. Now, because of his mother's passing, Harold was very determined to go to medical school. He wanted to go to medical school and become a doctor. And Harold would actually be the first person in his family to attend any sort of university. So it was a big deal for his family. Harold applied to Leeds School of Medicine and he ended up getting accepted and graduated in 1970. During his time at Leeds, he ended up meeting his wife, which is a woman named Primrose, and the two of them got married on November 5th, 1966, when Harold was 19 years old and Primrose was
was 17 years old. By the time they had gotten married, Primrose was already five months pregnant with their first child. Now, right after graduating from medical school, Harold went on to begin working at the Pontefract General Infirmary located in Yorkshire. And then in 1974, he took his first position as a general practitioner at the Abraham Medical Center in Todmorin. So at this point in 1974, Harold had two children, he was married, and he was starting off his medical career. Things seemed to be really looking up for him. However, shortly after beginning this new position as a general practitioner, Harold was actually caught forging prescriptions. He was forging prescriptions of pethidine, which is also known as Demerol, and he wasn't prescribing them to patients. He was prescribing them for his own use. Once he was caught doing this, he had to pay an almost $800 fine, and he was also required to attend a drug rehab facility in Yorkshire to try and get completely sober and clean and really turn his life around. When Harold was told that he would have to go to rehab, he actually didn't really fight it at all. He willingly went, and he didn't put up some big fight against it. Then three years later, in 1977, Harold became a general practitioner at the Donny Brook Medical Center in Hyde, which is a town near Manchester. Now, one of the reasons that Harold was even hired for this job to begin with was his honesty about his past issues with addiction. It was appealing to this medical center to have someone who had struggled with addiction and was open about their past and seemed to have wanted to help others as well. Harold worked at Donnybrook through the 1980s, and then in 1992, Harold actually developed his own practice. He basically, out of nowhere, told Donnybrook that he was going to be leaving and began his own practice, which he called the surgery. Now, Donnybrook was not really happy at all when this happened for multiple reasons. One of the main reasons being that when Harold opened his new practice, he ended up taking three thousand of Donnie Brooks patients with him. 3,000 patients who knew and trusted Harold went over to his practice when it opened, which was a huge loss for Donnie Brooks. Harold was said to have a certain appealing, charismatic trait about him. However, the one thing that was repetitive during my research was that Harold had an arrogant attitude with his employers. Anyone who worked beneath him or below him or for him, he tended to have a more arrogant, ignorant attitude towards. So that really is Harold's career background. He would go on to have a total of four children with his wife, whose names are Sarah, Sam, Christopher, and David, and that was his life. However, throughout all of this time, no one was aware what he was actually doing behind closed doors. So when trying to figure out the best way to explain to you the timeline of events when it comes to Harold and his murders, I realized that probably the best way to explain it is by working backwards. And the reason for this is because there are so many killings and so many deaths that the best and easiest way to understand it is to start from the end of his killings and work backwards. So in March of 1998, people started to notice that Harold had a very, very questionable number of patients that had died under his care. And when I say people, I don't just mean one or two people here and there who raised an eyebrow at him. I mean Harold's co-workers, people who worked in other offices, and the coroners who worked at the local funeral homes as well. They all began to notice that Harold had a high, high number of deaths. And it was also noticed that Harold was the one signing all of these death certificates for his patients who had passed away. And he would have 
random people that no one have ever heard of signing secondary signatures on these death certificates. And he would also request for his patients to be cremated and would usually say that no autopsy was necessary or requested. So because of this, the local funeral home was a family-run business and one of the people who ran it decided to go to Harold directly and express their concerns. When Harold was confronted, Harold came with receipts. He pulled out every document that could prove his case in point and he did it in a very calm way. He didn't seem thrown off, he wasn't defensive, none of that. He said that if anyone had any questions about the way he ran his practice or his legitimacy as a doctor that they could come to him and he would be more than welcome to show them his documents. And because Harold seemed so honest about the documents and seemed so secure with his answers, the suspicion against him was just kind of brushed off because he was able to convince everyone else that nothing was wrong, nothing was happening, and this was just all a coincidence. So for a while, this went quiet and nothing was really said about it. However, not too long after the initial confrontation, did another co-worker who worked with Harold notice again that something just didn't seem to be adding up with the number of patients he was losing. So this is when the concern was brought to the police. Now, when the police initially got word of Harold and his high rate of patients that he has lost, there really wasn't much that they could go off of. They could admit that it was strange, but there wasn't anything that indicated that Harold was intentionally murdering these victims. They didn't look too much into it, and they didn't do a background check on Harold at all. They just kind of let the whole situation go. The one thing that authorities did do was talk to Harold himself, and again, just like the first time, he was able to talk his way out of it. And what Harold said when he was confronted with these accusations was that all of his patients were older. They're elderly people, and they had been patients with him for years, so that combined with their old age explains why Harold's death rate is so high, because these people are older and they're dying from natural causes. So now we get to the point where the truth is uncovered, and this truth may not have ever been revealed if it wasn't for one woman who was persistent on knowing what happened to her mother. Kathleen Grundy was 81 years old when she was found dead in her home on June 24th, 1998. Kathleen's daughter is a lawyer named Angela Woodruff, and after her mother's passing, she had a lot of questions and concerns. Harold was the last person to see Kathleen before her passing, and he was also the one who signed her death certificate, listing her cause of death as old age. Now, when Angela saw this, this didn't make a lot of sense to her, because even though her mother was 81 years old when she passed away, her mother was not sick, she was in good health, she had no pre-existing medical conditions, and for 81 years, she was a very active and lively person, so her death definitely did come as a shock to most people, regardless of her age. Now, Angela wanted an autopsy performed on her mother after she had passed. However, this is when Harold interjected and said that there was absolutely no need to go through the process of getting an autopsy when Kathleen only died from old age and natural causes. Now, the kicker in the situation was, like I said, Angela was an attorney. She handled all of her mother's legal matters. She took care of everything for her mother. So you could imagine Angela's surprise when she was told that her mother actually had a will set up after 
after she passed away. And what's even more surprising here was that it was stated in this will that Kathleen wanted the majority of her estate to be handed over to Harold Shipman. Now, this doesn't really make any sense when Angela sees this, obviously, because why would you want to hand over your estate to your doctor. This is not something that is common with many, many people. It's not something that usually happens. So because of her suspicions, Angela went to the authorities and told them that she believed that this will was forged and that there was something else going on here. So the first thing authorities decided to do was track down the witnesses. And if you are unaware, when you make a will, you have to have witnesses to sign it in order to complete it. Oftentimes, people will use their attorneys as witnesses. However, when it came to Kathleen's will, the man who signed as a witness was actually a man who was just sitting in the waiting room one day of Harold's practice. According to this man, he said that he was in the waiting room waiting for his appointment when Harold came out to the lobby and asked the man to sign this document. Harold told this man that this document was for a woman who was a part of a study, and the woman was well aware that he was signing this and that Harold just needed a signature from him. It's all very bizarre, and there's no real clear explanation of what exactly this man was told. However, the man agreed to sign the paper, and Harold was actually folding the paper over so the man had no idea what he was signing because he wasn't able to see anything other than the line that needed his signature. Now at this point, authorities started connecting the dots and they started realizing that they may have made a mistake. They might have needed to look into this way earlier than they did. So they decided that what they needed to do now was exhume Kathleen Grundy's body and run tests to see if they could figure out her cause of death or see if anything seemed off. Now when this happened and the test results came back, it was proven that Kathleen actually had a lethal dose of morphine in her body, which proved that she had died from a morphine overdose. The tests also showed that the morphine overdose had occurred within three hours of Kathleen's death, and it wasn't any coincidence that the man himself who was doing a home visit to Kathleen's house during that time frame was Harold Shipman himself. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So at this point, authorities knew that they had Harold and they were planning on going to his house and raiding his home to see what they could find. However, when talking to Harold before doing this, of course, just as before, Harold had answers to all the concerns authorities had. He told authorities that he was actually helping Kathleen and that Kathleen was a drug addict who had drug problems 
and her death had no correlation to him whatsoever. Now, the problem here was that any person who knew Kathleen, all of her family, all of her friends, knew that she never had any prior drug history or drug addiction. Harold also offered to show authorities all of his previous notes from his time with Kathleen as his patient, where he noted that she was suffering from a drug addiction. However, where Harold failed in this was that he forgot the fact that his computer time-stamped all of his notes. So when Harold said that he had all of these documents and notes from visits with Kathleen over the years stating her drug addiction, his computer told a different story. All of these notes were made following Kathleen's death, almost as if Harold was anticipating this to happen and knew that he needed to cover his tracks. But the timestamps are ultimately what told his truth for him. When authorities raided Harold's home, they were also looking for a typewriter because they wanted to see if they could match the typewriter to Kathleen's will. And to authorities' surprise, Harold willingly handed over this typewriter. And when he did that, the police were able to compare the will to the typewriter, meaning the ink, the typing, things like that. And when they did that, they were able to label this will was a match to Harold's typewriter, meaning that he himself had written the will on his typewriter. When searching through Harold's home, police also found multiple pieces of high-end jewelry, and when they looked in his practice, they found an astronomically high amount of medical records and death records, indicating to police that Kathleen was most likely not the only person Harold had done this to. So I just want to make it clear, Kathleen died from a morphine overdose. She did not die of natural causes. She did not die of old age. Her death was a result of a morphine overdose, and Harold was the one who administered the morphine. I just want to make that clear just in case there was any misunderstanding. Harold was the one that did this, and at this point, the authorities knew that if he had done this to Kathleen, he most likely had done this to his other patients as well. Now, when the media got a hold of this, it prompted a lot of people who had also had family members that used Harold as a doctor and passed away to come forward and say that they too had a similar experience. Their family member passed away, Harold said that it was natural causes and no autopsy was needed, and along with that, the way that the bodies were found were almost identical. Most of these bodies were found sitting upright in an armchair, fully clothed. Because of this, about 12 bodies of people who had passed away were exhumed based off family members coming forward saying that they shared a similar experience to Kathleen Grundy. After all of those bodies were exhumed and tested, it was proven that the cause of death for each of those victims was a morphine overdose. On September 7th, 1998, Harold Shipman was arrested. His trial began on October 5th, 1999, and Harold was charged with the murder of Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Mary Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Nuttall, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Miller, Joan Melia, and Kathleen Grundy. All of these people had died between 1995 and 1998. And remember, this list of people doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all of the other victims that are out there. And it's important to remember also that police knew going into this case that they probably were never going to know the exact amount of victims that Harold had murdered because of the fact that he had pushed for many of his families to cremate their loved ones after they had passed away. 
At first, a lot of families weren't interested in cremation, they've said. However, they said that Harold was very persistent and very convincing, and ultimately, they ended up going with the cremation. So because of this, it made it very difficult for authorities to pinpoint the exact number of victims because they weren't able to test people who had been cremated. Now, when it came to the question of how Harold was able to get all of this morphine, during the trial, it was discovered that Harold basically used a patient and honestly mentally tortured him by telling him that he had cancer and that his cancer was getting worse and worse. And to help with what was going on, he continuously prescribed this patient morphine and he would over-prescribe this patient morphine and Harold would actually be able to get his hands on the extra morphine. But the reason I say that Harold mentally tortured this man is because this man never had cancer at all. He went to multiple different hospitals where different doctors told him that he didn't have cancer. However, Harold convinced him time and time again that he did. On January 31st, 2000, after six days of a jury deliberation, the jury found Harold Shipman guilty of murdering 15 patients by lethal injections and forging the will of Kathleen Grundy. The judge sentenced him to 15 consecutive life sentences and also received four years for forging the will. Harold Shipman throughout all of this denied any wrongdoing on his part. He denied his guilt to the very end and his wife also said that she had no idea that he was involved in any wrongdoing. Based off Harold's patterns as well as the medical records that he had, it was concluded that Harold probably was responsible for up to 250 deaths. There is a list of the assumed victims of Harold. It's actually the complete and full list. It's on murderpedia.org. So if you would like to go there and see the list, that's where you will be able to find it. It goes through the names, ages, and where these people lived at the time of their murder. And according to this list, it is presumed that Harold committed his first murder in March of 1975, then committed four more in 1978, then two in 1979, two in 1981, two in 1983, and then the list gets longer and longer after that. Now, if you think about it, Harold wasn't necessarily what you would consider a violent serial killer, meaning he didn't shoot his victims, he didn't stab them. However, he was just as bad, if not even worse than that. Harold would inject morphine into his patients, watch them die, face their families, and tell them that their loved one died of natural causes and walk away completely scot-free, unscathed, and undetective of any wrongdoing. People tend to trust their doctors. Whether you like going to the hospital, well, no one likes going to the hospital, but whether you hate the doctor or you're indifferent, people trust their doctors. They put their lives in their doctor's hands because they trust them to know what they're doing and they trust them to make the best decisions for them. So to have the one person that you trust probably more than a lot of people with your medical life, to also be the person to ultimately deliberately end your life is why I say that he is not a violent serial killer, but he's just as bad as the others, if not worse. Now, as far as motive goes in this situation, that is still unclear, and that is because to his dying day, Harold claimed his innocence. A lot of people believe that Harold was recreating his mother's death scene in order to satisfy some underlying need of his. Some say he was fighting a compulsion that he had no control over, and others say that it's simply that this is what he needed in order to feel superior. He needed to feel like he had control over his victims. The prosecutor of Harold's trial said, quote, He was exercising the ultimate power of controlling life and death and repeated the act so often he must have found the drama of taking life to his taste, end quote. 
On Tuesday, January 13, 2004, a day before his birthday, Harold Shipman was discovered hanging in his prison cell in Wakefield Prison. He was 57 years old at the time of his death, and his death had been ruled a suicide. Now, a lot of people don't believe that he actually killed himself because there were no signs of, quote, pre-suicidal behavior, end quote. The families of Harold's victims, a lot of them saw him taking his own life as the final betrayal. They knew that him taking his own life meant that they would never fully know the truth about how many victims he had murdered, and along with that, they would never know the motive behind why he did what he did. Now, surprisingly, Harold's children and wife Primrose have always stood by him and defended his innocence. Primrose visited him quite frequently when she could while he was incarcerated. Now, what's really frustrating about this case is that we know more about Harold than we do his victims. I always think it's important to shed light on the victim's story rather than give the murderer any more attention because they don't deserve it. And I felt like that was the biggest, most frustrating part when going through this case is that we didn't really have a lot of information on any of his victims. So I just wanted to point that out in case some of you were sitting there thinking the same thing that I was. Because we're not really learning about his victims or what the exact situation was or when or how it exactly happened each time there was a murder. And we're just kind of going off generalization. So I do understand that it's frustrating in this case for sure because you feel like you're giving the murderer more attention than honoring the victims' lives. But with that being said, you guys, I am very, very curious to see what you guys have to say about this case. So you can email me your thoughts, questions, case suggestions, comments, any of that stuff at my email, which is killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. With that being said, you guys, that is going to be all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here again, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you hit that subscribe button rate and review the podcast i will be back next wednesday with a brand new episode and until then guys stay safe